recorded live. Hello. This is William Fink, and this is Christoginia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, November 7th, 2015. Before we start tonight, I want to talk briefly about... um. The, the players, the podcast players at org. I hear reports from a minority of people that the players don't always work. If I had to guess, it's probably not 5% of our listeners. I've made a programming change at Christiania perhaps two, three weeks ago, where if you click onto the title, rather than trying to play the latest podcast from the front page, and when you do, you won't see the length of the podcast in the player. When you click onto the title, the audio file will preload, and you will see the length of the podcast in the player. And then you should be able to play the podcast without interruption. Some people with, um, I guess, poor latency internet connections or slower internet connections have a problem where the players play for two or three minutes and cut out. And, And if that happens, you should clear your browser cache and click onto the title of the page and the the title of the program, and then you'll be able to play the podcast once it preloads, and you should not experience that problem, ideally. There's been buzz on the Christiania forum today for promotional materials, and and I've had this in the back of my mind for... for, um, quite some time if um and I'll, I'll I think I should at least initiate it this week I should be able to at least begin to post some things because I do have a lot of artwork ready for business cards bumper stickers things like that I don't want to sell those things at a profit but I will um make some of the artwork that I use for those purposes available and post it on the home menu at Christagenia, or the main menu at Christagenia, which is the um, the center column of the website in that long list under main menu. Look for promotional materials, and when that appears, you'll be able to download certain graphics that we use in, in cards and bumper stickers. And I'll put instructions there on, on how to get your own made if you are so interested in that. And and that would help us spread our message, of course. With that, tonight we are going to address King James only Christians. And I'm hoping to keep this discussion to about 80 minutes. I don't know if I'll be able to. Addressing King James only Christians. Recently, during our visit to some Christian identity brethren in Eureka Springs, Arkansas, I was introduced to a man from Missouri who considers himself an identity Christian and a pastor. He and some others actually sat in the room with me and listened to one of my presentations of Bertrand Compare's sermons when we were up there maybe three weeks ago. We had a long discussion after that program was completed, but I quickly found out that this man, 
who I do esteem to be a sincere identity Christian, did not like anything of what I had said about the King James Version Bible translation. In fact, he refused to acknowledge that the King James Version of the Bible could be amended or improved upon in any way. And he insisted that talking about the scripture, we need a solid foundation, as he called it, and that the King James Version was the only solid foundation inspired by God. Is it really true that the King James Version is the only scripture in, inspired by God? And is it true that it was inspired by God? In Psalm 147, 19, we read that God showeth his word unto Jacob, his statutes and his judgments unto Israel. Therefore, there must have been holy scriptures before 1611 that Israelites could understand. Those words were written 2,600 years before 1611. In Acts chapter 17, we see the account of the men of Beria, who hearing Paul and Silas had received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily, whether those things were so. I don't think that those men of Beria in the time of Paul searched the King James Version. Therefore, there must have been holy scriptures before 1611 that the Greek and the Judean men of Beria could understand. Paul of Tarsus had wrote asking Timothy to come to him in Rome. And when he did, he also asked that when thou comest, bring with thee and the books, but especially the parchments. And the translation probably should have said, bring also the books, but especially the parchments. 2 Timothy 4.13 Since the King James Bible was not published until 1611, there were books and parchments that Paul of Tarsus considered to be Holy Scripture long before the King James Version. So we must ask this, which books have the greater authority, the King James Version or those which Paul of Tarsus had considered to be holy scriptures, whether or not they were in his own possession or in the possession of the men of Beria. The phrase Word of God appears many times in scripture, but the King James Version did not exist until nearly 1600 years after the crucifixion. So what was the word of God until then. One thing I learned from my sometimes heated conversation with this pastor from Missouri is that if a man has no background understanding of manuscripts, no background understanding of the history of Bible translation before the King James Version, then he does not have the tools necessary to understand why the King James Version is not what he claims it to be. I spoke for an hour and a half. No, I'm sorry. I spoke for half an hour 
about early manuscripts. The conversation must have lasted for close to two hours. I spoke for half an hour about early manuscripts, about the Geneva Bible, other early translations, and how the King James Version was created to supplant other translations in order to support the authority of the Anglican Church. And that was all to no avail. His steadfast position in support of the King James Version, combined with a lack of historical knowledge concerning translations and manuscripts, has blinded him from ever seeing the truth. To me, that is exasperating. Almost 900 years before the King James Version, the Anglo-Saxon church historian Bede, the venerable Bede as he's known to his English countrymen, had written proudly about the many churchmen who had been translating the ancient scriptures into vernacular tongues for the common people to understand. Bede wrote up until about maybe 730, 735 A.D. These translations of which Bede spoke were eventually outlawed by the popes because they often challenged church, Roman Catholic Church authority, even back then. The Protestant Reformation produced a lot of excellent and brave men willing to stand for the truth against the popes. But there is a huge difference between inspiration and motivation. There were many men who were motivated and perhaps inspired to translate the scriptures into their common tongues during this period. And the King James Version is a relative latecomer. Over 200 years before the King James Version, John Wycliffe and his followers, the Lollards, made the first complete Bible translation into English in the modern era. Martin Luther translated the scriptures into German roughly 90 years before the King James Version was published. Is Martin Luther's translation the inspired word of God for Germans, or do Germans need to, need to speak and learn English? Because Martin Luther's Bible does not always agree with the King James Bible. The Geneva Bible was created by a group of respected English scholars in Switzerland who were fortunate enough to have escaped the persecution of the Catholic queen, famously known as Bloody Mary. But in nearly every way, the Anglican Church was no better than the Roman Catholic Church. King Henry VIII never reformed the church in England. Rather, he only denounced the Pope in Rome as the head of the church in England and then appointed himself as the head of the Church of England. When the Geneva Bible was published, 60 years before the King James Version, it was immensely popular, and especially among English dissenters to the Church of England. 
These dissenters understood that the king had no ecclesiastical authority, and neither did the pope. They used better translations of certain Greek words to convey the idea of the Christian assembly as it was described in the original scripture. So in the Geneva Bible, we, we read the word congregation instead of church. That reading certainly is better because with the word congregation, we then see that the people of God cannot be replaced by some ecclesiastical organization. The Geneva Bible was also the world's first study Bible with many marginal notes. Some of those notes indicated that godliness was a resistance to tyranny. And both the kings and the popes despised that idea. While there were other earlier English Bibles, such as the government-sanctioned Bibles known as the Great Bible and the Bishop's Bible, the Geneva Bible was the Bible of Shakespeare, the Bible of Cromwell, for better or worse, right? All of the English Puritans, the Puritans of the Mayflower who came to America in 1620, primarily used the Geneva Bible. The Presbyterian church founder, John Knox, the famous English poet, John Donne, the persecuted author of Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan, and the famous author of Fox's Book of Martyrs, John Fox. William Whittingham supervised the translation in collaboration with the famous Puritan Miles Coverdale and a group of other English scholars. These men were associated with John Calvin and his successor, Theodore Beza. Some of these men, these men weren't pikers, some of these men, such as Coverdale, had worked on a translation of the previously sanctioned official English Bible, the Great Bible. The manuscripts of Stephanus and Beza were employed in the Geneva Bible translation, and also like the King James Version. Much of the language, perhaps 80%, was patterned after the great linguist and Bible translator, Tyndale. The fault of Tyndale's earlier Bible was that he had no Greek or Hebrew manuscripts available to him. So he was forced to use the rather faulty Latin Vulgate. The Geneva Bible was the first to be made in English from Hebrew and Greek, free of the Latin Vulgate. I'm not going to argue here the um, validity of the Septuagint over the Hebrew. It's not within the scope of this conversation. But the King James, I'm sorry, but King James, the man himself, found the Geneva Bible to be seditious, and especially its marginal notes. The Geneva Bible editors challenged any religious authority of kings 
over the congregations of Christ. And they also challenged much of the formal church structure which the Anglican church had carried over from the Roman. So King James ordered his own English Bible. He couldn't do anything about the Geneva Bible. It was created in Switzerland. He ordered his own English Bible. And he had an employee language which would uphold the official church structure without all of the marginal notes. The King James Version marginal notes, and it had them, forsook the commentary, but continued to supply many of the cross-references as well as alternate renderings of some of the words in the original languages. Once the King James Version was published, the Geneva Bible in the short term, remained far more popular. However, after a short time, King James banned the printing of the Geneva Bible in English, which forced his own Bible to become the standard. He legislated his Bible into the hands of the people. Therefore, modern Christians must understand that the King James Version of the Bible is popular today only because it was the government-mandated Bible of the time, and competition was eliminated by force. That also crippled English biblical studies and translation from developing any further. That is why we may fairly protest. But before discussing the need for better translations, let's take a look at the Greek manuscripts from which the King James New Testament was translated. To do that, we will simply quote from a rather accurate and straightforward article on what is called the Textus Receptus, found at a website called Theopedia. The term Textus Receptus is Latin meaning received text. It comes, the term comes, from the preface to the second edition of the Greek New Testament, published by the Elzevir brothers, Dutch printers, in 1633. In this preface, the Elzevirs wrote, Textum ergo habes nunc ab omnibus receptum, in quo nihil immutatum ot corruptum damus, which is translated, because we see the word textum and receptum, which is translated, what you have here is the text which is now received by all, in which we give nothing changed or corrupted. That's where the term textus receptus came from. And it didn't exist until 1633 in this printer's advertisement. The Elzevers printed seven editions of the Greek between 1624 and 1678. Unlike the editions of Erasmus, Estienne, and Estienne is really a, a reference to Stephanus. That was his academic name. His name was Robert Estienne, but he wrote under the name Stephanus. And his manuscript is called the Stephanus Manuscript. 
Unlike the editions of Erasmus SDN and Biza before them, the Elsevers were not editors of the editions attributed to them, only the printers. From this statement comes the term textus receptus, which today is commonly applied to all editions of the Greek New Testament before the Elsevier's beginning with the Dutch humanist Desiderius Erasmus and his first published edition in 1516. So what we see is that when the Elsevier's started calling their text the Textus Receptus, the term was sort of back applied to the sources which they received that text from, which is basically the third edition of Stephanus. Stephanus, in turn, got his text that he started working with from Erasmus, the humanist. But those versions were not called Textus Receptus until the Elsevers applied the name or that, or that statement about that text in 1633. Now, from the, same, from the same article from Theopedia, some background. Erasmus was the author of five published editions from 1516 to 1535. His consolidated Greek text, remember that, consolidated Greek text, was based on only seven minuscule manuscripts of the Byzantine text type that he had access to in Basel at the time. And he relied mainly on two of these, both dating from the 12th century. Now, why is this called the Byzantine text type? Because one of the Christian bishops at Byzantium received something from Alexandria. The King James-only supporters are always dissing the Codex Sinaiticus and the Codex Vaticanus of being of the Alexandrian text type. Well... This Byzantine text type came from Alexandria, and the codex that it came in was brought to Byzantium, and it was called the Codex Alexandrinus. And the manuscripts which later developed from this manuscript, the Codex Alexandrinus, became known as the Byzantine text type because that codex has some differences from other codices, the Sinaiticus, the Vaticanus, and so forth. So it's called the Byzantine text type, but we know that it came from Alexandria. So I really don't understand the grounds for their scoffing, except that they really don't know where their own text came from. The, um, the minuscules were late manuscripts, and Erasmus only had seven minuscules, and we'll talk about them a little later on. 
Our article continues, although many point to obvious limitations and short, certain shortcomings in Erasmus's first Greek text, later editors used it as their starting point, making minor revisions as needed based on additional Greek manuscript evidence. Robert Estienne, known as Stephanus, he lived until 1559, edited and printed four editions from 1546 to 1551. His third edition of 1550 was the first to have a critical apparatus with references to the Complutensian polyglot and 15 additional Greek manuscripts. The fourth edition of 1551 had the same Greek text as the third, but is especially noteworthy for its division of the New Testament books into chapters and verses, a system still in use today. The first Bible in English to use both chapters and verses was the Geneva Bible, published in 1560. These verse divisions soon gained acceptance as a standard way to notate verses and have since been used in virtually all English Bibles. Theodore Beza published four independent editions from 1565 to 1604. His text was essentially a reprinting of Stephanus' third edition with minor changes. The third edition of Stephanus became the standard form of the Greek New Testament text in England, and that of the Elzevers, published in 1633, which was based on that Stephanus manuscript, became the standard form of the Greek New Testament text on the continent. The Stephanus 1550 text as given in Beza's edition of 1598 was the main source for translators of the 1611 King James Version of the Bible. Now, Erasmus was a humanist. Estienne was the son of a humanist. And while Erasmus was a very respected scholar of his time, he was virtually idolized by humanists, and he is to this day. I could make a fair criticism of his motivations in other areas. I've already presented some of them here in my series on Martin Luther, which is hopefully still ongoing one day. There are thousands of minuscule manuscripts in evidence in existence today, the oldest of which date back to the ninth century. Those available to Erasmus did not predate the tenth century. These manuscripts, which were the work of medieval copyists, frequently disagree with one another. Many of them also contain late interpolations or substitute words when compared with the earliest known manuscripts of Scripture, which are the Great Onkyles and the Papyri, many copies of which date to earlier than the, 16th century, than the 6th century. I'm sorry. So Erasmus had only seven minuscules available to him 
That's it. And if they all agreed, he wouldn't have needed seven different ones, right? Stephanus added 15 to that count. But the manuscripts that Erasmus had were missing certain verses that were found in the Latin Vulgate. So Erasmus simply back-translated these, meaning that he basically guessed at what the Greek should say from what the Latin of the Vulgate said. Then Stephanus, and later Elzevir, worked primarily with the product of Erasmus to create their own editions. Now, while I, I esteem Stephanus also to have been a great scholar, neither did he have the best source material. He did well in one area, to make a critical apparatus comparing the variant readings in the manuscripts which he did have, and that practice is still useful to scholars today. But there are much better manuscripts available to us today than Erasmus or Stephanus could have ever dreamed of having. But the King James translators did not follow Erasmus exclusively, and neither did they follow Stephanus or Beza exclusively. So what manuscripts did they employ? The truth is that the King James Version of 1611 was not based on any single known manuscript. Rather, the translators basically cherry-picked a host of secondary versions, in addition to these few scholarly editions, in order to arrive at its English text. And this can be proven by comparing the King James translation with its sources. It employed the 1527 manuscript of Erasmus. It employed the 1550 manuscript of Stephanus, the 1598 manuscript of Beza, and, to some extent, it employed the 1522 and Polyglot and the 1592 Clementine Vulgate. While these later two manuscripts may not have made a large impact on the translation of the King James Version, when the italicized words are inspected, it seems that these manuscripts were indeed an influence on the final text. We will discuss those italicized words shortly. Now that we have discussed why the King James Version was authorized, and we have seen from what manuscripts it was created, we must ask this. Which King James Version is the absolute authority on the Word of God? If there are King James-only Christians, they must answer this. Which King James Version is the absolute authority? That is because the King James Version, which we have today, is not the Bible that King James had authorized, not by any means. In 1769, the original King James Version began to be replaced with another version. And to explain that, we will summarize an article entitled, entitled Changes in the King James Version, found at a website called Bible Research, and also offers some of our own comments. The article concerns only the New Testament, 
the changes in the Old Testament are even more numerous and more serious. In 1769, the Oxford University Press published an edition of the King James Version in which many small changes were made. These changes were of five kinds. One, greater and more regular use of italics. We will get to that shortly. Two, minor changes in the text. Three, the adoption of modern spelling. Four, changes in the marginal notes and references. And five, correction of printer's errors. This edition soon came to be known as the Oxford Standard Edition. Edition, I'm sorry, because it was widely accepted as a standard text by commentators and other publishers. The editions of the King James Version published in our century generally reproduce this Oxford edition of 1769 with or without the marginal notes. The following information is given so that the reader may gain an accurate impression of how far the modern editions differ from the original King James Version of 1611. And this is really um, not even that true. It's really only true of how far the 1769 edition was changed from the 1664 edition. And, and I'll mention some of that later, but I won't get into all of the details here. It's just not possible in one program. Now, while this article does mention changes finalized in 1769 regarding the removal of the books of the Apocrypha, it does not really concern itself with the Apocrypha. The original 1611 King James Version of the Bible included the apocryphal books. However, it was not until the Westminster Confession of 1647 that the Anglican Church officially excluded the Apocrypha from its canon. The Puritans were the first to print Bibles which excluded the apocryphal books. But evidently, that was not until after 1666. It must be borne in mind that if the authorization of King James or the original translators are required in order to uphold the exclusive authority of the King James Version, then that would have to include all the books of the Apocrypha, since originally they were authorized as part of the English Bible just as much as the other 66 books. Today, King James-only advocates give reasons for the inclusion of the Apocrypha in the 1611 King James Version. They make excuses for it, which the original King James translators did not give. So they are only conjectural excuses. Italicized words or phrases. The King James Version was originally printed in the type style known as black letter, which has a unique medieval English-looking appearance. 
words of the translation which were supplied to make the sense clear, according to the translators, but which were not represented in the Greek text used by the translators, primarily the Stephanus, were often set in small Roman type. In later editions, the the ordinary text was set in Roman type, as we see it today. So the supplied words were moved to italics. The important things to note here is that there are many words in the King James Version which appear in italics, which are admittedly, admittedly on the part of the King James Version itself, they are admittedly not a part of the Greek manuscripts that the King James Version was translated from. Off the top of my head, I don't know too many of them, but I know that 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 23, I believe it's verse 23, it might be verse 28, but I'm pretty sure it's verse 23. 2 Corinthians 8.23 has 11 italicized words in the King James. One verse, 11 italicized words. Now, I don't think the verse has 20, 22 words. Half of them, perhaps at least a third of them, are italicized. That's incredible meaning they have no representation whatsoever in the original Greek. Back to our article. This typographical feature was not employed very consistently in the 1611 edition. In many places, the supplied words are not indicated as one might expect. This inconsistency was probably the fault of the printer's compositors, who very often modified even the spelling of words in order to lengthen or shorten a line of type. Well, there are words that I know for a fact are added to the King James Version and were not italicized to this very day. The... um, just as an example off the top of my head, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 2, for all men have not faith. The word men is italicized. The word have should also be italicized because there's no verb in the Greek of that phrase, but it's not italicized. So there's still problems with that. I won't harp on that. It is the translator's assertion that it is necessary to add words to make the sense clear. Sometimes that is true, but on a case-by-case basis, many of those instances are highly contestable. We will note later that if it is supposed that God inspired the translators to be perfect, as many King James-only Christians claim, then why did God not inspire the printers to be perfect as well? We have admissions 
that there were printer's errors. If the translators were inspired to be perfect, you would think that the printers would be inspired to be perfect. This is especially important because it is another little-known fact that the original copies of the translators were destroyed in the Great Fire in London in 1666. From that time, all that was left are the copies of the printers, which contained acknowledged errors. Our article continues by saying that the editors of the 1769 Oxford edition undertook, therefore, to regularize the use of italics by italicizing all words of the translation which did not have a counterpart in the text of Stephanus six, from 1550, Stephanus's third edition. Consequently, modern editions of the King James Version are much more heavily italicized than the original 1611. In the book of Matthew, the 1611 edition uses Roman type 69 times, so they indicated 69 added words or phrases, whereas the more exact 1769 edition uses italics 384 times. So the original 1611 translators were not inspired to admit how many words they had to add. The reader should be aware of the fact that the King James Version is not, strictly speaking, a translation of the Stephanus manuscript. And so, in some cases, the modern italics are misleading if used as an indication of the readings upon which the version is based. For example, in Mark 8.14, the modern editions italicize the words, the disciples, because they are not in the Stephanus manuscript. But it is evident that here, the King James translators were following, as usual, the text of Beza, 1598, where the words, hoi matatahi, the disciples, are found. The following Following this paragraph in the article, they supply a complete list of those types of places where the italics were provided in 1769 because the words were not found in the Stephanus manuscript. But in reality, the King James translator in those passages were not following the Stephanus manuscript, they were following a different manuscript. And they don't tell us which verses they followed what manuscript. They just picked and chose, as they found convenient, between the six or seven sources that we have previously mentioned. If the original 1611 translation had marked 69 words in Matthew, as being added to the scripture, but the 1769 edition marked 384 such words, that is a sizable error to merely attribute to the printers. 
But it is equally important to note that there were 384 words added to Matthew by the translators, at least. Some of those occurrences may include multiple words. And those words are not in the original Greek of the manuscripts which they employed. Our article then talks about minor alterations of the text, and it says, the following list includes all changes to the text of the 1611, which, which do not involve the correction of obvious errors of the press, meaning the printers, or changes of spelling, capitalization, and punctuation. Most of these changes were made with reference to the text of Stephanus in 1550, and with a view to greater clarity or accuracy, so the King James of 1769 made significant changes to the text because they didn't think that the King James translators of 1611 were clear enough and accurate enough. So which of these Bibles is the inspired Word of God? Our article says, that some of those changes were later considered improper or unnecessary by the editor F.H.A. Scrivener in a book that he wrote in 1884. So perhaps the changes should be changed back, or at least some of them should be changed back. The article provides a list of 111 verses in the New Testament that had been changed for those reasons in 1769 from the 1611 edition. Now, most of them are relatively minor, but these are not printer's errors. Rather, they were deemed to be corrections of the original translation from the Greek. If the King James Version is the inspired Word of God in English, we must ask this. Which King James Version does that include? Or does God change his mind because God allowed or maybe even made mistakes? That thought is just absurd. God doesn't make mistakes. Men do. Men can be motivated to do things. And they're still going to make mistakes. Look at how many examples there are in the Old and New Testaments of that. Section 3 of our source article concerns the modernization of spelling and the altering of words to make the spellings, punctuations, or capitalization consistent. This raises another issue in relation to the claims of the divine inspiration of the translation. If the King James of 1611 was divinely inspired, why wasn't it in a language that would be more durable? Why did it so quickly have so many obsolete words? The marginal changes in the 1769 edition in the first edition of the King James Version, marginal notes indicating various renderings or readings appeared in 775 places in the New Testament. Of these notes, 34 evidently referred to various readings of the Greek manuscripts, 
places where they, the Greek manuscripts they used differed, and they thought it was significant enough to note. The editors of the 1769 edition left all of the original marginal readings and renderings unchanged, but added 87 more notes, of which 17 referred to various readings of the Greek manuscripts. Now, our article then gives a sample by listing the marginal notes added to Matthew, and then gives a separate list of translation alternatives added to the marginal notes of the entire New Testament. These lists of alternate readings also betray the influences of the Vulgate on the King James translation. Section 5 of our article gives five printing errors from Matthew as an example of the printer errors which were corrected in the 1769 edition of the King James Version. By some sources, there were revisions of the King James Version which in addition to changes in punctuation, capitalization, and spelling, also included many hundreds of changes in words, word order, possessives, singulars for plurals, articles, nouns, pronouns, conjunctions, prepositions, entire phrases, and the addition and deletion of words. So, is the inspired word of God in English represented by the verbally inerrant King James Version in 1611, in 1638, each of those years, there were changes to the King James Version of the Bible. We'll narrow it down to two or three. Is the 1611 version of the King James the inspired word of God? Is the versions which were printed without the Apocrypha following 1666 the inspired word of God? Or is the 1769 version the inspired word of God? Because they all have significant differences. So pick one. Which one is the inspired word of God? Now, all of the changes made to the King James Version may be dismissed by those who claim that the King James Bible is the perfect will of God. But the fact that there are acknowledged errors and necessary changes by itself reveals that God is not responsible for the translation, but that it was executed by fallible men. Anyone who claims otherwise only does so to support an agenda, and we don't have to believe your lies. We don't have to believe them. Not at all. You're lying, and we're not going to believe you. People that think are not going to believe you. I'm going to quote from an article, an article which actually, it, the article is terrible, don't get me wrong, but it actually defends the King James Version. And it has a more realistic attitude towards 
the translation. This is from Changes to the KJV since 1611, an illustration at the website Bible.org. And they say there are approximately 25,000 changes made. Now, this is from a King James Defender, right? 25,000 changes made in the KJV of the New Testament from the original version of 1611. But in the underlying Greek text, the numbers are significantly smaller. There are approximately 5,000 changes between the Textus Receptus, the Greek text used by the King James translators, and the modern critical texts used as the base for modern translations. That's one-fifth of the amount of changes that have occurred within the KJV NT itself, meaning the English. To be sure, many of these are fairly significant, but none of them affects any major doctrine, and I would disagree with that. And most of them are, like the internal changes within the King James tradition, spelling changes. In the least, and most of them were spelling changes of 25,000, but I wasn't really even discussing those. In the least, this puts the matter in a bit of a different light. Again, the reason I don't think the KJV is the best translation today is basically threefold. Its underlying text is farther from the original than is the text used in modern translations. And that's very true, because the text used for the King James Version of the Bible don't predate the 10th century and are based on a, a series of these minuscule manuscripts, which many of which many are very faulty, rather late, contain all sorts of changes and, and mistakes of their own and, and interpolations of the text. The second reason is its translation is archaic with now over 300 words that no longer mean what they did in 1611. And that's very true. The word world does not mean now what it did in 1611. And there are many other words of that type as well. 400 years of the increased knowledge of the biblical world and languages have rendered many of the King James rendering renderings obsolete. And with that, I would also wholeheartedly agree. And he goes on to say, all this is not to say that the KJV is a bad translation. I still think it stands as the greatest literary monument in the English language. And one can come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ reading the KJV, just as one can get saved reading the NIV. But if one is seeking clarity and accuracy, a modern translation is much preferred. His words, not mine. I would agree with most of them, with most of what he said, and have some minor disagreement because of what I would consider to be my deeper understanding of the covenants and ancient history. Now, we don't agree with everything that he said concerning the Greek texts. We believe that many of the differences in the Greek texts are much more significant than he is indicating. However, we also understand, and I've come across examples of this many times, that modern churchmen often 
defend bad translations because the translations are so important to many church doctrines. The point is, however, that even a defender of the King James Version can face realities concerning the text and the translations. There was another part of the original 1611 King James Version of the Bible, which was removed from all modern editions, but not until the 19th century. And that is the preface. The original preface to the 1611 King James Bible explained a lot of the attitudes and methods of the translators. No opinion should be promoted over their own as to the importance of the original languages, as to the nature and value of the translation, or as to what they themselves considered to be the Holy Scriptures. Because the translators did not think that they were creating the Holy Scriptures. The translators of the 1611 King James Version believed that all translations, no matter how perfect, were the Holy Scriptures. They may not have liked the Christogenia New Testament, but they would have considered that to be the Holy Scriptures. All translations, all honest translations, are representations of the Holy Scripture. That's how the original 1611 King James translators felt, and it's right in their preface. In the preface to the 1611 version, the translators spend much time extolling King James himself. They admit respect for the translators of Scripture who would come before them. And after admiring early Christians who had studied the Scripture in its original languages, men like Tertullian and, and Augustine and Jerome, they give a lengthy defense concerning the necessity of a translation. For centuries, the prevailing attitude of the Roman Church was that the scriptures be available only in Latin. For at least five centuries from this time, I believe. Then the preface gives a brief history of the early translations of scripture into both Latin and Greek, referring to the Septuagint, which they did not think very highly of, along with the brief survey of other translations into Dutch, French, and English, evidently using them as an authority of precedent to support the cause for their own translation into English. In regard to these translations, the King James translators attested that we are so far off from condemning any of their labors that traveled before us in this kind, either in this land or beyond the sea, meaning in Europe. They had this attitude because, as they make clear in their preface, they considered 
the scriptures in the original Greek and Hebrew to be the authoritative holy scriptures. And we will get to that. Concerning the translation itself, the original King James preface says, Therefore, let no man's eye be evil, because his majesty's is good. In other words, they believe their translation to be made on honest, beneficial terms, and didn't think that any man should despise them, because they didn't despise any other translation. Neither let any be grieved that we have a prince that seeks the increase of the spiritual wealth of Israel, and they believed that the Christian church was the Israel of God. But let us rather bless God from the ground of our heart for working this religious care in him to have the translations of the Bible maturely considered of and examined. Let's read that again. But let us rather bless God from the ground of our heart for working this religious care in him to have the translations, plural, of the Bible maturely considered of and examined. For... By this means it cometh to pass that whatsoever is sound already, the same will shine as gold more brightly, being rubbed and polished, works tried in the fire. Also, if anything be halting or superfluous or not so agreeable to the original, meaning the Greek and Hebrew, the same may be corrected and the truth set in place. So, in their own preface, the King James translators leave open the possibility for error and correction. Then, in the next paragraph, in response to the Puritans' complaints that earlier official English Bible suffered bad translation, they wrote, Now to the later we answer that we do not deny that we may, we affirm and avow that the very meanest translation of the Bible in English set forth by men of our profession, for we have seen none of theirs, of the whole Bible as yet, containeth the word of God. They're not denying that the very meanest translation contains the word of God. Nay, is the word of God. As the king's speech, which he uttered in Parliament, being translated into French, Dutch, Italian, and Latin, is still the king's speech, though it be not interpreted by every translator with the like or the same grace. Nor, peradventure, so fitly for the phrase, nor so expressly for sense everywhere. 
So in their own preface, the King James translators admit that other translations of the scriptures are every bit as much the word of God as their own, even if they are not the most eloquent. They are still the word of God. In the same light, the King James translators recognized the authority of the Septuagint, even though they thought it was defective from the Hebrew, and they expressed that. It is apparent that they thought this only because they accepted the claim of the Jews that their Masoretic Hebrew was authoritative, and they did not have the tools we have today that allow us to know better. There were no Dead Sea Scrolls in 1611. Then, answering the criticism of the Catholics, because the translation of the King James Version had already been amended before the preface was published, the translators say that, yet before we end, we must answer a third cavil, an objection of theirs against us, for altering and amending our translations so often, so oft, the original says, so frequently, wherein truly they deal hardly and strangely with us. For to whomever was it imputed for a fault by such as were wise, to go over that which he had done, and to amend it where he saw cause. So the King James translators understand. This admission alone betrays the fact that the King James Version is the work of fallible men. And the translators themselves humbly admit their fallibility right there in a preface. They then add, if we will be sons of truth, we must consider what it speaks and trample upon our own credit, yeah, and upon other men's too, if either be any way a hindrance to it. In other words, you throw your pride in the street in favor of the truth. This, to the cause, then to the persons we say, that of all men they ought to be most silent in this case, for what varieties have they, and what alterations have they made, not only of their own service books, portraces, and breviaries, but also of their Latin translation. The Vulgate, too, had undergone many changes, most of them corruptions. So the King James translators admit that sons of truth should study their own works, recognize possible errors, recognize the possibility of errors, and seek to correct even themselves. This is the attitude, the humble attitude expressed by the original King James translators. Who can follow them and put their work on a pedestal if they refuse to do it themselves and recognize their own fallibility? Then, 
concerning the work of the earliest Christian writers and translators, those who wrote in Greek and Latin, the early church fathers. The preface says, if you ask what they had before them, truly it was the Hebrew text of the Old Testament and the Greek of the New. These are the two golden pipes, or rather conduits, where through the olive branches empty themselves into the gold. St. Augustine calleth them precedent or original tongues. St. Jerome, fountains. The St. Jerome affirms, and Gratian hath not spared to put it into his decree, that as the credit of the old books, he meaneth of the Old Testament, is to be tried by the Hebrew volumes, so of the new by the Greek tongue, he meaneth by the original Greek. If truth be to be tried from these tongues, then when should a translation be made but out of them? These tongues, therefore, the scriptures we say in those tongues, we set before us to translate, being the tongues wherein God was pleased to speak to his church by his prophets and apostles. So, the original languages, according to the translators of the original King James Version, they bear the authority of the Word of God, and they should be appealed to. They are the authority. Then, after discussing other translations, they affirm, and I quote, neither did we disdain to revise that which we had done and to bring back to the anvil that which we had hammered, but having and using as great helps as were needful, and fearing no reproach for slowness, nor coveting praise for expedition, we have set at the length, through the good hand of the Lord upon us, brought the work to that pass that you see. And with all this, they do not assert that their work is the final English authority. Rather, they assert that it can be reconsidered and improved. The original 1611 King James Version also included hundreds of words in the margins, which represented what they considered to be alternate renderings of Greek or Hebrew words. Here, in part, is what they themselves wrote about this. Some peradventure would have no variety of senses to be set in the margin, lest the authority of the scriptures for deciding of controversies by that show of uncertainty should somewhat be shaken. But we hold their judgment not to be so sound in this point. There be many words in the scriptures, which being never found there but once, having neither brother nor neighbor, as the Hebrews speak, so that we cannot be holpen or helped 
by a conference of places. I did this often in my own translation when I wasn't absolutely sure of the various meanings a word could bear. I went to the Septuagint and checked every occurrence of that word in the Septuagint, esteeming that that was also the Greek literary influence of the apostles. That was my own technique. It's probably been used before. That's exactly what they're talking about here. There are a lot of words that only appear in one place, and if you don't have a lexicon showing you how the word can be used and was used by many other writers, like we have today with Liddell and Scott or Joseph Thayer, then sometimes you can be left guessing. And they leave room for improvement there, and they also, for that reason, supplied in the margin various other ways a word could be translated. And they say, now in such a case, does, an, does not a margin do well to admonish the reader to seek further? In other words, they're not saying that their word in the margin is the ultimate authority, but that the re reader should be admonished to seek further and not to conclude or dogmatize upon this or that preemptorily. Therefore, as St. Augustine says, that variety of translations is profitable for the finding out of the sense of the scriptures. Let me repeat that, you King James-only people. They quoted St. Augustine, who said that variety of translations is profitable for the finding out of the sense of the scriptures. That's your King James translators. They did not put their translation on a pedestal, and neither should you. So diversity of signification and sense in the margin where the text is not so clear must needs do good. Yeah, is necessary as we are persuaded. And it is a good practice to supply alternate translations where something could be made clearer. So here the King James translators admit that they are not the final authority of the Greek or Hebrew words of Scripture and that many things require further study on the part of the individual. Their entire attitude is quite contrary to those of today who somehow claim that the King James Version is the final word on Scripture. In this aspect, the translators themselves conclude they that are wise had rather have their judgments at liberty in differences of readings than to be captivated to one when it may be the other. There is no doubt that the King James Bible, Bible was a very eloquent work of art. But today, we have an additional 400 years of Greek scholarship. We have the archaeological discovery of hundreds of more ancient manuscripts. 
and we have many other excellent tools available to us, which the King James translators did not have. They didn't have Liddell and Scott. They didn't have Pascal's, Pascal's German lexicon, upon which Liddell and Scott is based. They didn't have Joseph Thayer. They didn't have a strong concordance. They didn't have the Codex Sinaiticus, the Codex Vaticanus, the Chester Bayady Papyri, 120 or 130 papyri showing readings from the 2nd and 3rd centuries are listed in the Novum Testamentum Grecae, which they didn't have. They didn't have the Codex Sinaiticus, the Codex Vaticanus, the Codex whatever. There's probably 50 of them from the 5th and 6th centuries that they didn't have. Now, we can sympathize with many of our Christian brethren that being raised on the King James Version of the Bible, they have come to trust it, and it is all that they have ever known. And it'll get you through life. There's no doubt it'll get you through life. But that does not in itself make the King James Version of Scripture the only acceptable version of the inspired Word of God in English. And we have seen that the King James translators themselves would never have believed that. What about the generations of Greek and Latin readers who knew no other version of the Old Testament outside of the Septuagint or the Vulgate? And those of the West who knew no other New Testament but what they were told from the Latin translations. And when the Geneva Bible or the King James Version was published, those Latin copies which so many churchmen and lay people knew were under attack because of the new English version. and they're being based on original language. So how would you like to be one of those churchmen who grew up with the Latin all your life back in the late 1500s, and you knew the Latin, and you loved it, and you trusted it? There are more holes in that Vulgate than there are in all the Swiss cheese in Zurich. But you grew up with it, and you trusted it, and some neophyte, some newbies coming along and shoving the King James down your throat. How would you feel about that? We can, almost, we, we can also sympathize that these people who know nothing but the King James Version cling to it because for almost a hundred years now, they have been assaulted with these modern versions. And often those modern versions have had nefarious agendas. There is no doubt that some have arisen having one agenda or another and have attempted to recreate the Bible and form their God, their small g God, in their own image. But defending against that, you can't take your King James Bible and turn that into a small g god. You're just as bad as these neophytes. We know that quite fraudulent translations have been made. The Living Bible, total fraud. 
absolute fraud. It's a blasphemy. There's a more recent edition purposely mistranslated to be gender-inclusive, and we can consider that as feminist, and that is also a blasphemy. Of course, we must forever guard against such people, but that is where inspiration and motivation must come into consideration. There are honest men, and there are dishonest men, and each are known by their fruits. The dishonest, however, are no excuse for refusing the work of the honest students of Scripture. And your King James translators would not have allowed you to do that. This Missouri pastor simply refused to accept that I, being an identity Christian, have a perspective of Scripture from a purely historical viewpoint that the King James translators did not have, but which is more agreeable to the context of the Bible. That perspective, I believe, allows for a much more honest New Testament translation. And the King James has many faults which his own ideology will never allow him to admit, no matter how well I can explain and prove them. He also could not understand that today we are blessed with resources that were out of reach to the King James translators, which provide us with much better original manuscripts and a much better understanding of the original Greek language in which those manuscripts were written. I may never get him to realize these things, but here I hope this evening to begin an ongoing effort to answer and hopefully correct the so-called King James-only Christians. So, in that regard, tonight's presentation is a first draft, so to speak. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening. I'll be here Friday night, Ephesians Part 4.